Well, good morning, and welcome to Hope Community Church. Glad you're able to be here this morning, and I remembered to unlock the doors today, so nobody got locked out. It's uh, fantastic. Check. Did that. Um, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, a pastor here at Lower Town, and, and uh, glad to be here and, and be able to open up God's Word. A um, couple, couple of just, uh, I don't know, uh, items here that I want to talk about before we jump into it is um, this last Tuesday we had our uh, annual meeting, and we met uh, downtown uh, Minneapolis at uh, Hope Downtown, and and we were able to meet there, and, and uh, a couple of things that we voted on. One was the budget, um, which if I didn't, I, I'm pretty sure I shared this, but we as a church, as a, as a whole, ended in the black, uh, which is awesome, um, considering that at the end of the year, in December, we were uh, basically a quarter uh, of our budget behind, and not just Lower Town, but as a whole, uh, we were about $455,000 behind, and all that and some came in the month of December. Uh, which is huge, obviously, answer to prayer. So thank you uh, to those of you who, who give and, and uh, gave. Um, and because of that, we're actually, uh, we voted on switching our uh, uh, year end, our fiscal year to uh, the end of June. June 30th is going to be now the end of a year instead of December 31st. There's a, uh, a lot of reasons for that, but a big one is just because of that. Uh, because of the December, we seem like, hey, it's hard to plan a budget for the next year when you're a quarter uh, behind uh, on your budget. And so um, that'll hopefully uh, resolve that uh, issue. And there's a lot of other reasons. And so feel free to ask me about that. But we voted on that and that passed. Uh, the budget that we, uh, it's a 4.6% increase from last year's budget. Uh, we, uh, that passed. And a big uh, reason why that number went up maybe more than 3% uh, or would kind of would be typical with inflation, that kind of thing. Uh, it's because of us, <laughs> in a good way, that we are actually getting our, our own budget for the last two and a half years. We kind of uh, were given this kind of seed money, just, hey, this is what's going to help you get going and get off your feet, and, and uh, that was great, but that, that emptied out, and because we have been faithfully giving as just a, a location, that we're able to get our own budget, and so that passed as well. Uh, and the last one is that there's a new pastor of Hope Community Church, and that's Davis Johnson. And so uh, if you know him, uh, he's a good friend of mine. I've shared an office with him for the last few years, but uh, uh, no longer. He got his own office now because he graduated. And then I'm still sharing with Pastor Drew, uh, who is now the location pastor of Columbia Heights, which just is today. So like right, right now, uh, they're, no, they start at 10. So not right now. Um, in 45 minutes, when we leave, uh, they're going to be starting their first uh, public service, launch service out in Columbia Heights. And so excited for them. They're meeting at Columbia Heights uh, Elementary School and really, really happy for the work that they're able to do uh, over there. So, um, yeah, so that was that. Was that. Just wanted to up you, update you on that. One other announcement is that we have um, every once a month, we have men's breakfast the last Friday of the month, uh, we meet uh, very early at 6.30 um, over at Swede Hollow. It's not far from here. It's just in Dayton's Bluff. It's, it's walking distance from here, um, it's, but it's across the highway, so I don't know how it'd be difficult to walk there. But um, anyway, so it's, uh, it's, we meet at 6.30, and we do. We, we pray. Um, so I just want to put that on your, on your uh, radar, men, if, if you're not part of it. There's actually a men's group on myhopecc.com. If you're not on that, feel free to talk to me. I'll go, I'm glad to add you to that, and that way if emails go out and things go out, um, um, you'll you'll be getting that. So we just meet for an hour, hour and a half, and 
and discuss what's going on. Sometimes we'll read an article together and, and talk through that. But um, anyways, love to have you, have you out for that. All right, so we are in the uh, fourth week of looking at Hope Community Church in 2020, specifically uh, Lower Town and us. What does this mean for, for us and looking at the kingdom of God? And so um, this will be the last week on this topic. And then next week, we're actually going to be jumping into uh, a, t- a series that we're calling Love, Love Thy Neighbor, How to Love People in Turbulent Times. And so this is something that we want to be able to talk about on um, any that we are now and I, and I think it actually flows well into what we're talking about right now that we are a people that are focused on the kingdom of God period uh, and we care about the kingdom of God and so how does my Christianity or how does my biblical ethic or whatever you want to label that as how does that actually influence my my politics and so we're not a one-party uh, people even if you personally are as a church as a group that's that's not what we are and so how do we love people that maybe we really disagree with on certain topics when it comes uh, to us on the political uh, spectrum and so we're gonna be doing that for a month um, and looking forward to that that series. And then after that, we're going to be studying the book of, of Job um, until the summer. So looking forward to that as well. Um, one other big announcement um, is that we are going to be, if, if you remember, when we were talking about Hope 2020 and the, this initiative, a lot of you, I think, probably signed up for this. These are the Hope devotions or said, hey, I'm interested in this. So um, Nolan, thankfully, has been working his tail off on this on our website. And so if you just go to... Um, uh, hopecc.com slash devotions. So on February 3rd, Hope Devotions will be posted on our website um, to receive notifications about the devotions. Join the mailing list. So this, you're not going to get spam. We already have all your emails anyways, so don't worry about it. Just This is just sign up for this, and that way you'll get a kind of a, a notification saying, hey, the new devotional is ready. It's three times a week, and, and we all as a church, not just Lower Town, but now Columbia Heights and Downtown, can read uh, the same passages of Scripture together and so I'm excited about that. It's just going to be seven to ten minutes um, looking at uh, three, three times a week, a, a psalm, a portion of a gospel, and then just uh, one more other passage that we can read together. And so I'm excited about doing this. I hope you are as well. Um, I will send out an email to you. If you, again, you're, if you're on my hopes you see, uh, you'll, you'll get the email just as a follow-up to say, hey, here's the, here's the link. And so just want to get that uh, in front of you um, moving forward. So... Um, all right, this week's, this week's sermon is, um, is the mustard seed, and it's really just, uh, you know, four, four verses. It's not, not a whole lot of, of text this morning, but there is so much depth to these parables that Jesus gets into. It's the mustard seed and then um, uh, yeast, which I found out are little mushrooms, so I didn't even want to put yeast on there. I can't stand mushrooms. I know that's not true, but it's a fungus. You mentioned that last week, right? It's a fungus. It's gross, gross. Um, but bread is good. Um, okay, so moving, moving on here, what, what is, and, I, and I've said this last couple of weeks, so I just want to uh, just, again, re- recapture just the definition of, of when we say kingdom, right? And this is, this is even true of what we just sang, right, from Psalm 130, from Martin Luther, the, the lyrics written back in the, the uh, early 1500s of who has at last his Israel freed from all their sin and sorrow, right? That when Luther wrote that, that when I sing that, hopefully when you sing that, you're not thinking this nation of Israel over in the Middle East. That's not what it is. It's not a kingdom. It's not a territory. It's not a land, um, that, but it is based on the individual. And as we look at Scripture and how Jesus is the true Israel and how everyone born of the Spirit, which 
what Luther talks about in that song that we just sang about as well, that we are part of that true Israel, that we are part of that, that remnant that say, yes, I believe the covenants of God. And so um, the definition that, that uh, Norval uh, Gildenhus gives us is, no doubt can be entertained that in both the Old Testament and in Jewish literature, Basilia, that's just the Greek word for kingdom, when applied to God means always the kingly rule and never the kingdom as if it were meant to suggest the territory governed by him. That when Jesus says, but your kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven, let your, your kingdom come, rule in people's lives and their hearts freely, not, not in some kind of territory or we can mark it out on a map that this is some holy empire. This is simply God's kingdom that transforms the lives of the individual. And then last week, um, uh, looking at what is a parable, and so we, we uh, slowly kind of walked through these six steps, and I started off with a really uh, terrible, uh, you know, uh, bad um, uh, prophecy of the success of the Green Bay Packers. Um, thankfully, this is not the Old Testament, or you would uh, have full freedom to stone me to death because I'm a false prophet. Um, and uh, so, so that, that backfired. Um, that's okay. So, but, but what's the point of a parable? Right? Why does Jesus tell these stories? Why does he tell parables? Well, it makes an abstract idea concrete and visible. And so he's going to take something that people actually can see, they can look at. So he looked at the parable of, of the farmer or the sower. And, and looking at that, he probably was standing there saying, hey, do you see that guy sowing seed? Do you see that farmer spreading the seed? Well, the kingdom of God's kind of like that. right? He, he takes something that, that is visible and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that that now that idea and he moves us from here to there or from uh from here and now to to then and there of saying that hey we understand this but what is more they're interesting that we are able to listen to these stories a little bit more um because of just it's a story and stories people like stories it's just how how we're wired um and they make us think for ourselves that Jesus doesn't. There's a few times where he explains the parable to his disciples, but not to the general population that's listening. He just says, here's the parable, done, right? And so people have to go back and they have to ruminate on it. And they got to chew on it and think about it and say, oh, this is, this is what it is. It also um, conceals its meaning to some in the sense that some people just don't really care. Some people don't want to take the time. They don't want to do the work. They don't want to listen. Um, and, and so for people who don't, don't care, don't want to listen, then, then they're not going to understand the meaning. And then uh, finally, and I think almost most importantly, is it was spoken. That, that parables are not an allegory. That this is not something that every little detail, well, that means this, and this means this, and, and maybe it means that, that that has nothing to do with it. Um, that it was spoken, and so there was a one time where they heard it. One time that they listened to it and they had to go back and say, okay, Jesus said this. What did he mean exactly by that? And so it, there was one major truth that Jesus is trying to get out of these parables as he's speaking. And then finally, because of that, we have to grasp the text in their town. We have to put ourselves in their shoes, in their robes, or in their sandals, or whatever. Right? We got to. We got to do that. We got to stand there on the shoreline of this lake as Jesus is standing the boat, as he's pointing out to a farmer, he's pointing out to a mustard tree, or whatever it may be. That we've got to understand. Okay, what would they have understood that to be? How would they have interpreted that to be true? Um, in their context, we have to be able to do that. So I'm just going to, because it's just a shorter passage, I'm just going to read it first, and then, we'll, and then we'll jump in. So this is Matthew chapter 13, 31 through 33. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, 
which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So that's the passage that we're going to be looking at. And again, we maybe just read that and go, okay, I think some things seem obvious, but I just want to take some time to, to jump into this. And, and, and today is going to be a little bit more application-y heavy, um, that normally it's just kind of at the end, like, hey, here's the gospel application. I want us to really think about how these two parables impact us, all of us uh, at this church, in our community, or wherever we're at in our life. So let's look at first the parable of the mustard seed. And so Jesus at this point, again, is using everyday items. He's, he's looked at the farmer. He said, hey, these little children, whatever it may be. And so now he's going to look at this everyday item of the mustard seed. And he told them this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which when a man took it and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds, when it grows, it is the largest the garden plants becomes a tree so that birds come and perch in its branches. And so if there's one thing that, that comes up, okay, right, in our context, we go, it's actually not the smallest seed, right? Why does he say that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds? It is very small. And, and, and the bush, uh, it turns into, into this. This is a, a Middle Eastern Palestinian mustard tree. Um, if you've ever seen them, like in our, uh, at least in North America, they're almost just like little flowery type plants. Um, very different over there. And so they, they turn into these large, um, kind of almost invasive, you know, large uh, bushes and trees and plants. And so that's what he's doing, all right? And so maybe he can see one, maybe not, but it's something that people would have known what he was talking about when he, when he says it. But when we look at the mustard seed, was Jesus like lying here? Why, why does he say the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds? If Jesus actually created all the seeds, wouldn't he know which one is smallest, right? Which, um, which I think, if I remember, was this uh, cedar, I think, is uh, smallest, which is interesting, of, of trees and plants and that kind of thing. Um, however, this was actually an idiom, which I, I didn't know that until this week. That this was like a very common phrase within uh, Jewish culture that they would just use that phrase. Oh, it's just like a mustard seed, right? Like, so if somebody got cut and they were bleeding a little bit, they would say, oh, it's just a mustard seed, right? Like, it's just a, it's just a tiny little nick, right? It's all it is. Um, or if somebody told a, told a lie or something like, oh, it's just a mustard seed, right? Instead of, oh, it's just a white lie, it's a, no, it's a mustard seed, right? It's just kind of a, a phrase that they, that they use. And so it was just kind of a common phrase, a common idiom that they would, that they would use uh, in this. And so, uh, in this, and, and it's also not just common in phrase, but also common analogy. And so even going back to Ezekiel 31, um, this is actually God describing the kingdom of Egypt. And he says, all of the birds of heaven made their nest in its bows under the branches, branches, all the beasts, the field gave birth to the young and under its shadow lived all the great nations, right? That he's describing, and this happens a lot. There's a, a several other passages uh, within our Bible and other uh, texts that are extra biblical that would say the same kind of a thing, that it was this common analogy to describe a, a kingdom's growth and power was based on a tree. But Jesus here doesn't take some massive cedar of Lebanon, which is what is used here in this passage or described Egypt. He uses this tiny little mustard seed that grows into this bush, that it's not this massively huge, obvious thing, but it's something that starts with a small beginning. 
that this is what Jesus' main point of this passage is, that this, this kingdom, that although maybe someday this will be a big thing and be a big deal and everyone will know what Christianity is or, or who I am, it's going to start small, that this is going to be the kingdom of God. And so I want us to think about maybe some small beginnings in our own lives or, or maybe within culture that we would look at and say that was just this tiny little thing. And there's so many, so many things that I could have said or used, but one that jumped into my mind, um, and, and even as I was digging even further, was, was this man. This is uh, William Wilberforce, and you may be familiar with him. He was uh, part of the British Parliament uh, back in the um, you know, late or early 1800s, and uh, he had this idea uh, to end the slave trade in, in Great Britain. And it, but the thing is, and maybe we know him, there's documentaries on him and the fights that he had to do with in Parliament, and this is, you know, 40, 50, 60 years before the United States even begins to start having these conversations. That William Wilberforce ends this thing and it becomes, and it's just from an idea. But as I was reading about him a little bit more this week, that it actually wasn't his idea. That he was actually just the one that, that voiced it, and we know him. Right, but I guess what happened, uh, the story behind it is that William was uh, really good friends with um, uh, William Pitt the Younger, not the elder. Uh, I learned that the elder is his dad and the younger is junior. I don't know really they just say senior and junior, but they, I guess that wasn't a thing back then. Um, and so William Pitt, though, was actually prime minister of, of England at the time. And they were hanging out, and, and William Wilberforce looked very um, downtrodden and, and uh, melancholy and all these different things. And so William Pitt said, hey, what, what's going on? And he said, I just read this book, or I just read this story about the slave trade and how horrific this is. And I, and I just feel terrible that this is, that we're doing something about this. And he's sitting there with the prime minister as he's a, a leading member in parliament. And so this guy, William Pitt the Younger, it's actually his idea that he, as the prime minister, says, well, then why don't you do something, right? Why don't, why don't you bring this up in parliament? Why don't, you, why don't you make a motion to end the slave trade? And William Wilberforce ends up doing that, right? That these small beginnings of just an idea, that it just takes this one small little thing, something that you might, you might say and you don't even realize the impact of it, that that's what the kingdom of God is like, this seemingly little innocuous act or idea or word or phrase that takes root and grows and produces fruit. It's also a small beginnings when it comes to a witness. This is true of, of missionaries. Now, when we look at the most effective way to reach people in, in other uh, cultures and countries, it's not to take a plane and just drop a bunch of literature on them, right? You know what it's like to get spam or to get some random thing in the mail or whatever it may be. That just, that, that's me, right? I get something in the mail and it's garbage, right? I mean, I just don't even, I don't even look at it. I don't, I don't read it. I don't care, right? I don't, I don't know who this person is. I, I really don't want to pay any attention to it. And so when it comes to being a witness what does it mean? It means actually training people, learning the culture, learning the language, and, and actually living Christian lives over there so that it is attractive to people who are there. And, when it, and it's also true of our church, that when we look at ourselves here, that it's not about, and even though we've, we've done, we've sent out flyers, we've sent out mailers, we've done some stuff on Facebook, what is it? Like, it's like 90% of people who ever go into a church are there because of a personal invitation. Now, this is true of food, right? Just think about food. Right? If, if would you ever go to a restaurant, someone's like, man, you got to go check out this restaurant. Oh, cool. You've been there? Well, no, but I've heard some good things about it. 
Well, that testimony doesn't mean anything, right? It's got to be a personal experience. There's a reason why still to this day, uh, if you're on Facebook or whatever, people will, will say, hey, anyone, anyone have a good recipe for blah, blah, blah? Well, why not just Google, just Google that, right? There's a lot of things on the Google that will tell you what a good recipe is, but they want someone's personal experience. There's a reason why I still call my mom and say, hey, mom, how do I make a good Bernays sauce, right? Because she knows, and she knows it's a good thing, right? I, I need that personal invitation, and it's same, same with us, with our community of being a witness to people. It starts small. It starts small. Finally, when we look at this aspect of the tree and the mustard seed that we look at a Reformation, and, and obviously I could have talked about Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and the Reformation of just this small thing of, of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, but there's actually one that happened before that that transformed something and not even with any words spoken. It's by a gentleman, a man named, uh, I'm going to butcher it, Telemachus, T-E-L-E-M-A-C-H-U-S. And he was a, a religious man back in Rome, and he felt the call of God to go to Rome and go to the Colosseum to end the gladiator fights. He knew that this culture was just engrossed with blood and death, and they worshipped it. They worshipped this violence, and he was so distraught that he actually went to one of the games and as the gladiators were fighting, this religious man jumps down into there and he pushes some of the gladiators to the side and uh, they don't know what to do, right? Like, who's this old man getting in our way? So they, they push him away and they continue fighting and he comes back and he separates them again and they look up to the, to the emperor who's sitting there and, and he gives them the, the thumbs down or the thumbs up. I forget how, it, how it, I think it was opposite. I think they gave thumbs up, which meant kill him. Um, and they do. And the gladiators slaughter this old man and as the story's told that the place is in utter silence, that they just realized what just happened, that this man was trying to stop people from being killed, and he himself was killed, and that was the last time the gladiator games were ever fought in Rome. That it took one man, without even saying anything, doing something, right? Making, making a difference. And that's what exactly what the church, or exactly what the kingdom of God is. And not only is it just those things of these small beginnings, but this is also really encouraging, and it should be to all of us as well, that it starts small. We talked about this last week, that as we share the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we don't know what kind of ground it's going to land on. We don't know if it's going to take root. We have no idea. And it's the same thing here, that things start small. A couple months ago, Pastor Sheila, one of the pastors here at First Baptist, she was actually talking to me about uh, just, just this. She said, I, I want to preach encouragement. I want to preach patience to you. As a smaller church, as you're growing, that there was another church that was, that was started here back in the, in the mid-90s. And they said they were, they were a church of 30 people for three, four years until they really started to grow. Right? That, that these, these small beginnings, that it's, it's encouragement in the sense of we don't know what's happening. That God is at work even when we cannot see it. I think of uh, Pastor Steve, my boss uh, from downtown, uh, Hope Community Church downtown, that he, he shares a story of how he came to saving faith in Christ, that he was at some church thing. Uh, he was invited to it by one of his friends. He went, and some guy that he didn't know preached the gospel, and he heard it for the first time, and he accepted Christ as a Savior. That night, he always tells a story. He was uh, in a shower in his dorm room. That, that was, that was the, the moment that he... He was saved. And it wasn't until really just, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, 
that, that someone in our church knew uh, of this other pastor and, and, and connected Steve and this now very old gentleman over the phone. And as they're, they're weeping together and they're sharing the stories of this guy just sharing the gospel, then you have Steve who goes on to plant a church that's going to impact a younger generation. That this is it's a big deal. And there might be, we might not ever hear the end goal. We might not ever hear, oh, that person came to faith and man, they did all these different things. It should be encouragement enough to know that God is at work in these small beginnings within I mean, think about it. This was just 12 disciples hearing this, and they're going to make a huge difference. They're going to turn the world upside down, although they had no idea. So it's small beginnings, but also there's transformation as we look at this next parable of the yeast. So we see that we have this farmer and the seed, something that we can see. We have these children. We have the, the mustard seed, but now he's going to turn to bread. And one commentary actually just called this the, the uh, Jesus' most personal um, parable that he's going to share. That he's now lo no longer saying, hey, look at that thing, look at that thing. He says, I'm going to enter into our house. I'm going to enter into where we live, where we have our, our family, where we stay, where we eat. I'm going to remember, Jesus is probably remembering, watching his, his mother, Mary, making this bread and making this, this dough. That he enters into this, but he does it in a really striking way. Because every single time in Jewish literature, and even including the New Testament, that when yeast or leaven is used, it's always synonymous with evil or wickedness or something like that. And here now, he's doing that, and he's flipping it on his head the same way that he does all the time. He's taking something that seems like wicked and evil, and he's using that now as an analogy as good. As something is different about this, it's no longer the old way of looking at things. Something's changing, that there's a new covenant that is going to happen with my blood and my body, with this bread and with this juice, with me. Something is going to change. Something is going to be radically different about this kingdom. In the Old Testament, when we look at the Passover meal, if you remember when we were going through Exodus, we spent a couple weeks talking about the Passover and the significance of that meal, that when they were about to have this meal, that for one entire week, they were to go all throughout the house and get rid of anything that had yeast in it. And it's still true to this day within Jewish communities. They will, they will go through their house and anything that has any kind of yeast, they throw it out. And, uh, and so a buddy of mine who's, who's a believer, Aaron Shaw, but he grew up Jewish, he said that when you go through a neighborhood that's Jewish, you'll just see a bunch of stuff, a bunch of food out in their front lawn. They just, they throw it out, they get rid of it. And so this is what Jesus is saying, that this is no longer the case. There's something radically different about this, this kingdom. And there is some major transformation. He tells them this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So there's different ways that I want to focus on the transformational power of the kingdom of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is true for the individual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul is going to list a bunch of egregious sins and sins that every single person in this room, in one way or another, has committed. But he uses this phrase that he is speaking to his church, the church in Corinth. He says, and such were some of you. That there's something about believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms me. That when someone repents, repentance is literally a turn. 
a change, a 180, that I used to be doing this thing, and I've turned from that way of thinking and way of doing and living, and now I'm transformed. I'm completely different. And so we can look at Christ, who is tempted in every way, and yet without sin, I've shared this before, but I'll share it again, that Jesus say, oh man, he was, he was tempted, right? He, he was tempted, uh, but yet he didn't have sin. How is that possible? How can he be tempted like we are when he's actually fully God? How is that even possible? It doesn't make any sense. And I've used this analogy, so I'm going I'm to use it again. And so uh, forgive me if you've heard this before, but to me, it really helps me understand this idea of Jesus being tempted like we are yet without sin. So when you go, uh, back in the day, I used to work out a lot, <laughs> not anymore, um, and uh, I, would, I worked out with a buddy who was a lot stronger than I was, and, and it was good for me. We, we, you know, I, I pushed him because once I started to get close to the weight he was lifting, then he would, it would push him to, to lift more, like, oh man, Brian's doing this, I gotta do more than that. Um, and so, but what would happen is if we were just lazy in the sense that we wouldn't take all the weight off of the, off of the bar, right? So if we're doing a bench press and he's got more weight than I can lift, he would, he would help, right? He would spot me and he would, he would lift it. And so I would always try by myself and it would just, you know, crush down on my chest and then, and then he would help me lift it, right? I felt the, the weight of that, but I couldn't lift it. But when my friend got under there and he was able to actually lift it, the question is, who actually felt the full weight of that bar and all of those weights? Well, the guy who can actually lift it. And when we look to Jesus, who is human, who comes to this earth, you know, because he is trusting in the Spirit fully, that he actually bears the full weight of that temptation, but he is able to successfully lift it. And so the, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is tempted in every way, yet without sin, he defeated sin. He won the victory over sin so that us, we, the ones who are actually being tempted, can now be the victor in that. So it's true of the individual. It's also true for women. There was a prayer that uh, Jewish men would pray when they would get up. And I quote, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. All right, that was true of, of Jewish culture. It was also true of Greek culture. And I was reading about this a little bit more, that they were just completely alienated, that they had their own wing of their house, that even children didn't really interact a whole lot with their, with their mothers. They were just completely in seclusion. And then also in that same area, just in the Middle East, of, of that the men always rode on the donkey, and then women would walk alongside carrying things like almost like a pack mule. That this changes, this transforms that women are no longer sub-anything, that they are equal in dignity and value and worth, and radical transformation happens not just for the individual but also for women. This is also true for the weak and the ill. We probably have all heard the horrific stories of Sparta. Any time a child was born, that they would be inspected. If there was any kind of, of a deformity or weakness or illness, it was immediately cast down. That they had no respect for life. They were a nuisance. Uh, Dr. Uh, Randall Short, in his re research, found that the first blind asylum by Thalysis was founded in the first century, and he was a Christian monk. That the first hospital that we have on record was by Fabiola, a Christian woman. The first free dispensary of medication and food was by Apollonanus, a Christian merchant. Then we look at Christianity, they were the first to be interested in broken things. That's the transformation of the power and the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom.
And then we see it is also true for the elderly, that they were just told to cast them out. There was something on record that I was reading this week that, that someone, hey, sell, sell your oil that's getting a little bit older, sell your wine that's getting a little bit older before it's too old, before it's completely spoiled. Sell your old sheep, sell your older slaves, and sell, sell your old people. Right? Just get them off your hands so you don't have to worry about it, so they don't have to be a nuisance for you. And so when we see Christianity, it's the first time that we see men and women as human beings and not just an instrument capable of doing work or helping me or paying the bills. And then finally, we have transformation for children. Now, when we look at our culture, there's so much of our lives that is built around the child and the sanctity of life. Unfortunately, that's not true necessarily of our culture so much anymore that children are still now, again, looked at as a nuisance, as an inconvenience of my job, of where I'm at in my life. When we look at Christianity and how the, and the value that it places on life and for children and babies, it's completely radical. Uh, there's a book that I've quoted before, The Book That Made Your World by Vishal Mangawati. And in that, he's an Indian uh, from India, and that he actually talks about this idea that when we look at Hinduism specifically, that they believe in reincarnation. So if I have a child that's born, that's sickly, that's about to die, well, it's actually better in their culture to just let it die. That's another mouse that I don't have to feed. Hey, they're going to be born again. We'll be fine. We'll see them again. Then just let it go. That there's no value. There's no sanctity of life. And this changes within Christianity. Now, again, it's just information. Just data, 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 data. Okay, cool. That's what it is. This is what it does. It transforms in all these different ways. And, and it just needs this small beginning and all these different things. And so we could say, hey, we've got to care for people better. Right, we as a church, hey man, I want, you to, I want you to go out and I want you to invite five people to church next week. And that's just legalism. It does no good. I, I, I could say, hey, you need to get, get your ideas out there, right? Hey man, tell me your ideas. Or hey, man, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an influencer on Instagram, right? Let me get your ideas out there. I'm not, I'm not an influencer. Um, it's just, that's probably fatalism, if not legalism and... and or karma, or something like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't end here. And so, so I, in gospel application, that we need to share the good news. Why? Not because we have to, but because we get to. Because you know, just like a really good recipe, you've experienced it. You've experienced the transformation in your own life, and so you want to experience that, and you want other people that you love and you care about to experience that as well. That you are able to say, and... Such was I, that I once was like that. I once was blind, but now I can see spiritually. I once was lost, but now I am found spiritually. This is what has happened in my life. And it is all because of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Another thing that I want to bring up that I know and I am guilty of, I've mentioned this a few times over this series, but who do you think of that will never repent? Right, who is that that pops into your mind? You're just like, there's no way. There, there is absolutely no hope for this individual. They're too far gone. They're too, they're too wicked. I've, I've been sharing the gospel with them for so long, and nothing's happening. We need to repent of that way of thinking and know that just like the Apostle Paul, that there is no one anywhere in any time who is beyond the reach of the gospel. Nobody. We're all thinking of somebody I don't, man I, don't, man, I don't know about that person. Let's pray. Let's pray about it. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for us, lack of faith. 
and to share this good news and the experience that has been true of us. And then finally, that we need to be transformed. And I don't just simply mean walking through this, this gospel door of going from no faith to faith, right? This idea of repentance, of I once was lost, but now, now I'm found. That's true. That is one radical transformation, but this is a continual transformation. This is something that I need to continually be doing in my life to be transformed by Christ, being continually changed. You believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to this world and lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, and he died for your sins so you can have freedom. You believe it, so now live it. Be transformed. And we can now do this because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that I no longer have to do these things. I get to do these things from experience because I've seen this in my own life and I've seen this in others. We're going to be entering into a time of communion like we do every week. As we remember, as I mentioned, this Passover meal, as Jesus is having this Passover meal with his, his disciples that, that his people have had for thousands of years, all the, all the yeast is gone, and everything, every, everything's prepared, and they're having this meal, and he says, I have longed to have this meal with you because I'm about to do something radical. I'm about to transform everything you thought you understood about the good news of the Passover, that the, the, the death angel saw the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorpost and the mantle and passed over my people, and spared the firstborn children, that we remember that, but something now is going to change, that no longer is going to be the blood of a lamb. It's going to be the blood of the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It's going to be the blood of me, of God, of your Savior. And so he opens up the juice and, and pours a cup of juice and or the fruit of the vine and passes it around and, and says, this, this is my blood which was shed for you. As often as you take this, drink it in remembrance of me. And then he takes the bread and passes it around. And he says, this is my body which was broken for you. Take and eat. And as often as you do, do this in remembrance of me. And we get to do that. Thousands of years later of looking at this sacrificial meal, of being able to say, this is about Christ and what he did, the transformation that he stirred up in my soul that changed me not just now on this earth, but for all eternity. We do have a gluten-free option on your right if that is a dietary need. One other thing that we're going to be doing um, uh, now today and in the future is that we're going to be uh, reinstituting our, our prayer team. And so uh, a lot of you, I think you maybe know this, but we, we do pray uh, in the mornings at 845 uh, down in the library, uh, down the hallway back here. Love to have you come join and just pray for our, our neighborhood, pray for our church, pray for people that we love and care about. Uh, but we're also going to be having people in the, in the back during communion to pray. And it's not like there's some, some magical thing about being prayed for. There's one thing that I've, I've said, and it's been a while since I've said it, is that uh, Christianity is a personal relationship with Christ, but it was never meant to be private. And so there's something we just need to, we just need to say, we need to speak, or hey, just pray for me about this thing. I just want you to be prayed for, right? There's, that's all. And so there's going to be people available um, uh, that you can go pray with uh, and be prayed for, uh, and pray for them, that nobody, nobody in here is perfect. Um, but we are only made righteous because of the work of Christ. And so will you, will you bow your head with me as we pray, as we look at who do we need to share the good news with, as we look at how and what particular ways can we be transformed by Christ? What is that one thing that I just don't want to give to God? Maybe I don't think I can be transformed. Let's give it to, let's give it to Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, as we...
As we look now at these um, elements of the juice and of the bread, God, would we just be reminded of, of what the kingdom of God is? And, as, and would we be reminded now as we look forward even into this next month, as we look at just the political landscape and, and, and look at our culture around us to be able to say, what is the kingdom of God? That it's not about territory, it's not about position, it's not even about policy. It's about Jesus, it's about forgiveness, it's about grace, it's about mercy, and it's about pointing people to you. So God, would you help us have that attitude and that mindset as we partake of these elements to remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us and to us thousands of years ago, that that would be reminded, be made new in our minds as we partake of these elements, that we remember what it is that Christ did for us on the cross and set us free from the power of sin and death. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.